There are some pieces of art that just stick with you, that completely change how you view the world and art itself. On this episode of Navigating the Inevitable, we're exploring death and dying through three stories about art. The first story is about a particular piece that didn't take much talent to actually make, that I could recreate with $10 in two minutes, but nevertheless, it changed me. This is Act 1, Time, Mortality, and Other Loving Relationships. Two clocks hang next to each other on the gallery wall, close but not touching. Next to them is a little plaque that all art has at museums. The work is untitled, but next to the word untitled, in parentheses, it says perfect lovers. It proclaims the artist is Felix Gonzalez Torres. And at the very bottom, in that place where a world of information usually lives, there is only the year that the piece was made, 1991. What was happening in 1991? Disco was fading as grunge took over. The Hubble telescope launched. Ross Laycock, Felix Gonzalez Torres's partner, died of AIDS. But maybe that's not far back enough. Maybe we should go back to when Felix Gonzalez Torres first thought of the idea in 1988. Put a piece of paper into a typewriter and began writing a love letter. Don't be afraid of the clocks. They are our time. Time has been so generous to us. We imprinted time with the sweet taste of victory. We conquered fate by meeting at a certain time in a certain space. Time. We are synchronized now and forever. I love you. But maybe even that's not far back enough. Maybe we should go to 1983, when he began studying at the Pratt Institute, when he began to realize what sort of art was expected of Hispanic artists. This is really important, because as Hispanic artists, we're supposed to feel, not think. Brecht says and began to practice the conceptual minimalism touted as universal by white artists and white critics. Meaning is creating once something can be related to personal experience. But maybe we're getting too academic. Maybe we should be in 1990 in LA with Ross and Felix. LA 1990, Ross and I spent every Saturday afternoon visiting galleries, museums, thrift shops, and going on long, very long drives all around LA, enjoying the magic hour when the light makes everything gold and magical in that city. It was the best and the worst of times. Ross was dying right in front of my eyes leaving me. It was the first time in my life when I knew for sure where the money for rent was coming from. It was a time of desperation, yet of growth, too. Or maybe that's too personal. Maybe we should hear why it took him so long to make this. Time is something that scares me, or used to. The piece I made with two clocks was the scariest thing I've ever done. I wanted to face it. I wanted those two clocks right in front of me, ticking. Or hear what it isn't. That is one thing that bugs me about artists who are doing so-called gay art. When I had a show at the Hirschhorn, Senator Stevens, who is one of the most homophobic anti-art senators, said he was going to come to the opening. And I thought, he's going to have a really hard time explaining to his constituency how pornographic and how homoerotic two clocks side by side are. He came there looking for dicks and asses. There was nothing like that. Now you try to- Or hear what it's trying to do. 
The thing that I want to do sometimes with some of these pieces about homosexual desire is to be more inclusive. Every time they see a clock or a stack of paper or a curtain, I want them to think twice. Maybe we should think twice. Maybe we should sit here and watch the clocks tick in unison, praying one doesn't lag behind the other, praying we don't see it stop, leaving its paired mate to continue into time alone until it too lags, then stops, knowing that one day we will lag, then stop. This is Act Two, The Evolution of Depictions of Decay. When my grandmother died, I didn't want to see her body. Her death wasn't a surprise, and I was old enough to hold my grief, but something about seeing her felt wrong. When my mother forced me to pay my respects, my mind revolted. My Nana's body lay in the coffin. She wore a pink outfit and makeup. She looked almost like she did before, and I wanted to get as far away from her as I could. I wanted her body to reflect what I knew. She was dead, and that wasn't my grandmother. That was a corpse. It felt like a cruel joke that this person appeared so similar, but was so very different. Almost like an apparition of my grandmother was haunting her wake. That was not the reaction of most of my other family members, who took comfort in the fact that she looked the same. I don't know if my reaction would be the same today, but I still struggled with the ways in which we hide the effects of death on a body. That's what made me interested in Kuzozu, our Japanese corpse contemplation paintings. It was originally a Buddhist practice of paintings that depict the nine stages of a decaying corpse, which served as a meditative tool on the impermanence of life. In the centuries since its origin, and much like the decaying bodies the practice depicts, Kuzozu has morphed and evolved to something completely different from what it originally was. This idea of corpse contemplation comes from early in the life of Buddha. It is what Elizabeth Tinsley, a professor of Buddhism at UC Irving, calls. It's a classic scene in which the Buddha, who is born a prince, essentially of a, a small kingdom, is coming to a realization about the state of the world and the effect of human suffering. And in one scene, he wakes up in the morning. I think this is the day that he decides to leave his life and go out and become a, a spiritual seeker. And he looks at his harem of women, and they're all asleep and disheveled. And he describes them essentially as grotesque corpses. And that, again, that's about the illusory nature of appearances, right? So it's, it's kind of a part of his, the beginnings of his realizations. In Buddha's oral teachings, he prescribed corpse contemplations to his followers. And in Buddhism, death is generally seen as a moment of transition, rather than a moment of horror. For these specific paintings and these specific ideas around corpse contemplation, they're not originally kind of grotesque or meant to be disturbing in any way. 
it's really facing the human condition and learning from it. It's a, a serious meditation practice, but then it kind of takes on its own life in text and in visual representation over hundreds of years and through various different cultures as well. In Japan, this idea of corpse contemplation was often in the form of these kusozu and almost exclusively featured beautiful women's bodies. It was intended, of course, to null heterosexual desire, which is related to attachments and to things that Buddhists traditionally are trying to liberate themselves from. But it evokes a disgust as well, and that's the, the dangerous fine line, right? Trying to nullify desire and prevent feeling dis disgust. They weren't just used by monks who were supposed to stay celibate. In fact, they were widely consumed throughout Japan. And they had a lot of functions, actually, a lot of religious functions, too, in larger communities. So you might have lay devotees, right? So they're still religious, but they're looking at them, in fact, not to contemplate impermanence, but just, just seen as a representation of the human realm, which is considered to be a realm of suffering. Or sometimes they seem to have been looked at to contemplate the impurity of women, Beyond their sacred function as meditative tools to understand the transience of the body, these images were used as a sort of spectacle because the women in the images were beautiful and erotic. They existed as a part of Japanese culture, both secular and sacred. Then... In 1853, four American warships steamed up the bay at Uraga, near Edo. Commanded by Commodore Perry, the Americans had come to open up Japan. Japan was on a mission to modernize. And at the beginning of the 20th century, Kuzozu seemed to disappear. And they do disappear in terms of high culture or religious culture. But they slide underground. That's why I'm so fascinated by them, because they stay potent. The images are very potent. They don't go away. They can't be done away with very easily. And so they go underground and they go into subcultures. The images reappeared in these sort of humorous works of pulp fiction, based around one subculture in particular. In Japanese, ero, guro, nansensu. So it's all English words which are changed into Japanese words. And so it's erotic, grotesque nonsense. And in brief, in its early stages, this was considered to be a celebration of things that were really ridiculous, kind of deviant, kind of odd and unusual. And a simple explanation for that is that this was a time of the boredom of the urban dweller and the urban consumer, and it was pro providing stimulation, right? But there was a lot of kind of trash, in a way, or ephemeral media that was produced around this. And then... The industrial city of Hiroshima, second mission the port of Nagasaki. Japan had its choice, complete surrender or complete ruin. The war was lost. In the post-war period, this becomes much darker. Actually, it loses its nonsense element, its ridiculous element. World War II left marks, both physical and psychological, on Japanese society particularly on Japanese soldiers, whose bodies were seen as just another thing to sacrifice in the war 
who inflicted torture and war crimes at the command of a nationalist government that no longer existed to justify their actions. In the post-war years, these veterans had to find a way to make sense of what they had seen and what they had done. Part of that process led to the emergence of these magazines created by and for veterans. They drew from the sort of spectacle of pre-war pulp fiction. But they were different, less ridiculous, and much more violent. These magazines, the main ones, the big ones, were established by the war veterans. And in fact, one of them explicitly introduces its first issue as saying, this is meant to be a comfort for the men who have come back from the war. The images were no longer focused on the erotic and humorous spectacle, but rather on images of cruelty. One artist in particular, Itu Seiyu, was known for his use of the kuzozu. He makes these into scenes of torture of women. These are not natural deaths. Original kusozu, in the Buddhist sense, those are natural deaths. That's someone who's died naturally and it's a decaying body. Instead, in Seiyu's pictures, he is showing assaults. He's showing women being killed. This is very, very different. Also, he often links his paintings to war atrocities, but not to the Second World War explicitly. He links them to old battles in Japanese history that he is talking about, about war, essentially. Um, so that's where you see something very different going on, uh, deliberate mutilation and killing of women. Uh, this is what you also see in these Eroguro kind of trashy magazines that he illustrated for. One of the most famous of these magazines was called Kitan Kadobu, which means Bizarre Stories Club in English. These depictions of torture and war were supposed to be comforting, but that still leaves the question of why these images would be of a comfort. First of all, the magazines justify to a great extent what happened during the war. We know, of course, that the Japanese military were accused of severe war atrocities. A special issue, in fact, of Kitan Krab was about war torture and war atrocities all over the world and it was presented as a justification so there was an explanation that this is a human instinct it happens all over the world essentially the message was we're not unique and i, I imagine that that would have given a sense of comfort it would have helped psychologically with people who had come back from the war the kuzozu in these magazines that show women being tortured and raped and killed, also position these acts of extreme cruelty as part of a bizarre pulp fiction story, as normal, maybe even erotic or funny. They try to normalize what they did or saw and make it less traumatic. Today, the artist Matsui Fyuko is using the kuzozu form again. But this time, the women depicted have the control. Kusozu are no longer natural deaths. They're suicides or attempted suicides. She's done five works in the series, 
which all explore motivations for suicide. They're a response, and perhaps even a rebuke, to the histories of gendered violence and sexism that has plagued the Kuzozu form. She's pushing back, actually, against the assaults that she has probably herself observed in Ito Seiyu's paintings, for example. This is masochism, but it's a kind of powerful masochism. It's like she's saying, I'm doing this to myself, but she says explicitly with these images of a woman who is dying or dead, you can see the insides of her body. That's, just, that's not just showing her interests in anatomical dissection. It's also, she is saying, this is what a woman is. She wants to show the uterus. And that is a form of power and agency. Matsui often addresses the sexism and gendered violence in Japanese society in her work. She's an incredibly successful artist, and she gained acclaim early in her career. She received her bachelor's, master's, and PhD from the Tokyo University of Arts, where her doctoral dissertation explored the ways in which art can evoke sensations of pain. She often draws from pre-Meijing-era artistic traditions, like Kuzozu, but Tinsley says they function differently. She is reworking Buddhist imagery, but with very different concepts because she is a descendant of a 20th century into 21st century culture, which was full of all of these other very dramatic events and new cultural movements, Eroguro, post-war stuff, war-related trauma, Matsui's kuzozu are intended to act as a sort of talisman, preventing people from suicide. The idea is connected to a traditional Japanese practice of hanging terrifying paintings of ghosts in your home, so that robbers and invaders would be too scared to enter. I think perhaps her images are operating on the same logic, like, look at this and be afraid, a form of protection. That's what a talisman is, it's a form of protection. Her work seeks to make the observer feel the pain of these suicidal women and face the stark reality of their deaths. She's not celebrating suicide. She also says explicitly that a failed suicide is an indication that there's a, a kind, compassionate part of yourself that steps in and stops it happening. There is this kind of control that you can have and that's a very comforting thing to say as well. These works are a way to access that kind and compassionate part by forcing the experience of pain and horror that defines suicide on the viewer. That part of you is supposed to take control and stop you from harming yourself in the future. Like the original Buddhist meditative tools in the post-World War II magazine illustrations, Matsui's Kuzozu were created to help. While all the variations of Kuzozu have functioned in ways beyond their initial intention, it is worth noting that they all sought to provide relief. That the contemplation of death, something that we shy away from or sanitize, especially in America, possesses value across time and circumstance, and that the suffering of living can sometimes be relieved and managed.
through the understanding of death. This is Act 3, a good death for an artist. I was in Paris, and I was looking for a specific type of artist to do a story on for this podcast. I knew there were plenty of... Inspired his series of portraits of victims of insanity. Repeated writing accidents and chronic tubercular infections ruined his health. He died after a long period of suffering. Great artist, clearly contributing to his state of depression. Much more than the effect nitis, headaches, dizzy spells, delirium. His relationships with other people became more and more difficult as his health worsened. But I was looking for something different. I didn't want to tell the story of an artist in pain creating a few tortured last works before passing away. I wanted an artist whose relationship with their own dying was different, who didn't fit into this romanticized mold. So I started looking. And then... Is this it? Oh! We found him. So, his grave is gray. It's right next to a tree. In gold, it says Edward Monet, 1834 to 1892. To be honest, I was surprised. I'd only really known Manet from his most famous piece, Olympia, which I studied in my high school AP Art History course. So I have my notes from that AP Art History class here with me in the studio um, on all 250 pieces. Let me see what I wrote on Olympia. Okay, so I'm on the page. Work 100. The painting shows a nude woman, a known Parisian prostitute. She's lying on a bed, turned towards the bureau, with a cat at her feet and a black servant bringing her flowers. Her hand is clenched between her legs, and she stares directly at the viewer, asserting her autonomy. Hyperware of history. Work to broke free. Fighting the academy. Received poorly at the time. Flat painting, compressed area, high contrast. So that's all I really have from my notes on him. That was all he was to me. The first of many rebels to scandalize and shock the artistic academy. The sort of man who would submit a painting of a known sex worker or the painting of Christ. A radical who delighted in challenging the art world, sure. But one of many. But like his art, he's so much more complex. But he was really extremely upstanding, I would say, appropriate if that makes sense, not in a kind of loser way, but just had a sense of propriety and duty and, and respect, which is just funny to keep in mind when you think of something like Olympia, where people thought it was, you know, the rudest painting ever on view. I think Manet was shocked by people's repulsion to it because he had been looking at Titian and Raphael and, you know, he thought he was competing or at least trying to compete with such respect with those greats and instead people thought he was giving everybody the finger he was i think kind of misunderstood at the beginning that was katherine kremnitzer she's an expert on manet and was a research associate at the art institute of chicago working on an exhibition on manet's late works in 2019. that exhibition changed my view of manet he might have been radically avant-garde in how he painted and what he painted but he wasn't fighting the art academy he was born to a wealthy aristocratic family in 1832 and grew up with a great appreciation for the same art institutions that later scorned him. 
He was earnestly committed to the traditional ways of earning artistic credibility. He was a gentleman in every sense of the word, professionally, but also personally. His wife, Suzanne, she was brought in essentially to the Manet household when Manet was still quite young to teach him and his brother how to play piano. She had a son. It's still technically unclear whether the father was Manet or his own father, but nonetheless, Manet married Suzanne and took in the son as his own. So that's an extremely outstanding thing to do. Okay, it's a little bit, you know, incestuous or kind of complicated along social lines today, but in bourgeois society, he cared for her and he took her in and he raised this child as his son. He spent many years of his life trying to earn the respect of those institutions that he held so dear. While he was revered by the Impressionists, he didn't take part in their exhibitions. He was dedicated to the Salon, a yearly exhibition that was essential to traditional success. It was only in 1881 that Monet was officially recognized by the French government. Unfortunately, it was a year into his self-imposed exile from Paris due to his declining health, and only a year before he passed from complications of tertiary syphilis. At the same time he was finally achieving his career goals, his mobility was becoming severely impaired, and he was in an immense amount of pain. Eventually, his foot had to be amputated. I think it was pain and a lot of swelling. It was something that he kind of tried to keep under wraps. I remember at one point it was reported in a newspaper that he was kind of suffering and he was very upset that that got out. There's an incredible episode where Monet visits him after the amputation. He'd had gangrene, so I think is why they had to ultimately amputate. But Monet is sitting on the bed and puts his hand in the spot where Manet's leg would be, and Manet screams out in pain, like having this phantom limb experience. So it became quite a gruesome tale. Manet was working through it all, even on the day he died. He painted still lives of flowers, pastels of the latest fashions, and portraits of society women, among a few other topics. So it's a period that historically had been kind of sidelined, art historically, I would say, because it was written off as an artist in decline or an artist, quote-unquote, late style. For Kremnitzer, the works were incredibly intimate and full of generosity. If someone sent him flowers or oranges, he would send them a still life back. That he was actually very funny and kind of humorous. One of my favorite still lifes in the exhibition is what became a pair of asparagus. One of them is a bunch of asparagus. The other is a single asparagus because the man who bought the bunch overpaid Manet. He was so happy to have a still life that Manet sent him a single asparagus. In other words, you forgot one, I owe you, because he was so happy with the amount of money that he received. So he really was kind of cheeky. This work, that's focused on smart, fashionable women, that's full of generosity and friendship, has only started to get recognized. When they saw some of these subjects, whether they were known women or celebrating fashion or individuality and the kind of self-fashioning or gardens, flowers, these subjects that seemed soft or easy or feminine, you know, you can see how a group of men would be dismissive of that. 
And I guess it's important to note that the scholarship began to change when the people writing the history started to change, you know, with a first wave of not just feminism, but a kind of art historical feminism. And in terms of a late style, or the question of finish, which I think goes hand in hand, I think it's very easy to look at Manet's physical decline and try to map that onto his work. And I don't think that's fair at all. As he gets older, he's looking at the world around him. He's not really looking to the past. He's looking very much to his own present, to the point where he's recreating it in his studio when he can no longer physically go. So I think, you know, with age comes some kind of confidence, but also an interest in painting on his own terms subjects that he thought were important, that maybe historically had not been so important. You know, women, couples, gardens, the latest fashions. I think he thought all of that was quite interesting and worth paying attention to in a real way and in a new way. It wasn't just about painting things that were beautiful or fashionable or even that made him happy. He was painting modernity and the rise of industrialization and what that meant culturally. Whether it was having street lamps on the street or, you know, the latest muffs for women or hats or canes or the pocket watch. He was just interested in, in all things modern. And, you know, I think it can be a little bit reductive to, to think about those decades as just being about beauty, happiness, and fashion. But it's true that those things brought him happiness and he was invested in beauty and, and fashion and the ways in which I think fashion and beauty could actually be manifestations of individuality and not just personality, but taste and choice and a kind of presentation that could be celebrated and codified almost in these works of art. When I think about it now, that is a much more powerful story than the one that was told about the rebel artist fighting the system, who in his later years painted easy works that sold quickly and didn't challenge the art world. When I went to go visit Manet's grave, I thought about this Manet, the earnest artist dedicated to revolutionizing the art world with a deep respect for all that world had done. A gentleman whose generosity and humor defined him in his worst moments. Someone who in the deepest pits of pain and dying chose to paint fashion and beauty and happiness because those things mattered just as much as the difficult things he so acclaimed for. I stared at his grave and at the flowers that someone had left there. I wonder if he would have sent back a watercolor to whoever had brought them. Thank you to Gael Phobes for voicing Felix Gonzalez Torres. Thank you to my editor, advisor, and greatest cheerleader, Melissa Cheshire, and to Katie Benson for designing my logo. Um, 